0: Because of my relationship to God, because of my standing before God, the future is certain. It is the why and the how the psalmist was able to preach to himself in Psalm 42, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. In other words, remember who God is. Soul, remember what God has done. Remember what God has promised to do. What he has promised to do in this life, and what he has promised to do in the life to come. Hope is the Christian's certainty of the future. For example, something big, if you're not aware of this, something big is happening on Tuesday. It's Taco Tuesday. Remember that. And many people, because of what's happening on Tuesday, many people today are anxious. Many people are worried. Probably some of you. Many people are even afraid about what is going to happen on Tuesday and in the days and the weeks and the months to come. Now, because all of that from Tuesday on, because all of that is in the future, the correct play call for the Christian today is hope. Because remember, hope is for the future. Not panic, not anger, not fretting, but hope as Christians. We are completely and totally certain. We are certain of who God is and what He has promised to do in this life and the life to come. Now that doesn't mean that God has told us who is going to win the election. But, He has told us that He knows. More than that, He knows... Because He has planned it. More than that, He has planned it for the ultimate good of His people and the glory of His name. And He has told us He'll be with us no matter what. He has told us that He will lead us, that He will provide for us and on and on and on so we have this hope we have this hope in this life between tomorrow and the day that we die that God is good and he is going to do good to us but at some point I'm not going to lie this life could get really bad. It could get much worse for Christians in this country. It is right now much worse for many of our brothers and sisters who are in other parts of the world today it could get so bad it could get so bad as it had for Paul that hope in this life just would not be enough to get us through it just wouldn't cut it it wouldn't be enough In fact, if the hope that we have in this life were the only hope that we have, then according to Paul in verse 19, we would be the most pitiable people on earth. A farther reaching hope is needed. A farther reaching hope. It's the hope that historically gets christians through persecution and disease and famine and great suffering it is it is the hope that is used often by christians in poor places and less by christians in affluent ones let me say that again it is a farther reaching hope That is used much more by Christians in poor places. And much less by Christians in affluent places. It is hope in the life to come. It is certainty of what happens after you die. It is the hope that. Enabled persecuted Martin Luther to write, Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. My body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom lasts forever. So that's the hope in the life to come. After we die that Paul illuminates in our text today. Let's pray before we begin. Our Father in heaven. By Your Spirit and through Your Holy Word, fill our minds with truth and our hearts with love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have Bibles here, if you didn't bring one, so reach into that seat back in front of you. And you'll find 1 Corinthians 15, if you're using that Bible, on page 904, open your Bibles and follow along. 1 Corinthians 15. Our first verse, verse 20, you see it begins with the word but, which you students know, most of you I hope, is a conjunction, which is a kind of word, is a kind of word that joins two thoughts together. So we can't read verse 20 without looking back. And reading verse 19. They're connected by that word. So let's do that. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. But. That's not the case. Right. Contrarily. But. In fact. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So what we can do is just flip those verses. The second one, let's read that first, and then we'll swap out the conjunction but with the conjunction therefore. It's okay to do that, by the way. Here's what it's saying. Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, Christians do not have hope in this life only and should not be pitied. And so, Paul's main point in this text is this. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, Christians have hope in the life to come. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, Christians have hope in the life to come. And what Paul does in the rest of these verses here is to explain our hope in the life to come by spotlighting three future certainties. And here they are. I'll give them to you in advance. Number one, hope that Christ will raise us from the dead. That is the Christian's first certainty that he illuminates in the life to come. A hope, that Christ will raise us from the dead. Number two, hope that Christ will destroy His enemies. Number three, hope that Christ will restore the kingdom. Let's turn now to verse 20. And let's begin with Paul's first point. We have this hope in the life to come. We are certain that Christ will raise us from the dead. But let me just say that I think or suspect that these three certainties that we're looking at this morning are not things that we think about very often. Maybe you do. So I apologize if this is something you think about a lot. But again, these are hopes, these are certainties that are more commonly meditated on and thought about in cultures where there is much suffering, where there is much persecution. And less so in affluent ones. So let's slow down this morning. In case that's you, I know it is me. And really think about these certainties that Paul wants to highlight. So number one, we are certain that Christ will raise us from the dead. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There are two terms here that we need to understand. The first one is first fruits. And the meaning of that word is Exactly what you would think. It is the first fruit that appears on a plant. And the significance of a first fruit, it's twofold. One, if you have this plant and you have a first fruit, that means that there's more fruit to come. That means that there will be a future harvest. And second the quality of that first fruit is important. Because the quality of the first fruit indicates what the quality of the rest is going to be like. The future fruit will be like the first one. So Paul, in saying the resurrection of Christ was a first fruit, is saying that, More resurrections are coming, and they will be like Christ's. Okay, the second term to understand is fallen asleep, which we've talked about, but in case you weren't here or forgot, remember that fallen asleep is this beautiful term, really, that describes the death of a Christian. And it is the term used in the New Testament to describe the death of a Christian because it rightly implies that for Christians, death, like sleep, it's only temporary. It's only temporary. And so we say a Christian who has died, has passed away, has fallen asleep. So put together what Paul is saying. We understand those terms. Put together what Paul is saying. The resurrection of Christ is proof of the future resurrection of God's people. And then next, in verses twenty-one through twenty-two, Paul explains this theologically. The reason that Christ's resurrection ensures our resurrection is because he, Christ, like Adam, was a covenantal representative for his people. Adam was and Jesus was. They are called the first Adam and the second Adam. They are covenantal representatives of their people. That means that what they do, In this case, what Christ did affected all his people. So Paul writes in verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is, resurrected. Another way of saying we will be resurrected, all shall be made alive. So who do you belong to? Well, you all belong to Adam. We all belong to Adam. His people is humanity. He was the first man. And what Adam did has affected every single one of us, and we are guilty of sin and face the same judgment and punishment that Adam did. So the question is not, do you belong to Adam? The question is, do you also belong to Christ? Are you his people? Have you believed in Him? Is another way of asking that question. Have you believed in Him? Have you believed that He came, Jesus, and lived and died and rose from the dead in your place? So that punishment paid by Him, you could be forgiven of your sin and you could be reconciled to God to live with him and for him forever and now do you trust him do you trust Jesus and do you follow him if so if so then what are we learning then his resurrection is a pledge that you also, no doubt about it, you shall be made alive. You, like Christ, will be resurrected. You will be raised from the dead. Never to die again. I won't go into a lot of detail because verse 35 will in weeks to come. But we're not going to be ghosts. We're not just going to be spirits. We're not going to be floating around on clouds. Our spirits, our souls, will be reunited to this earthly body. That look at your hands. Your soul, when you are resurrected, will be... Reunited to this body. But this body will be changed. The Bible says. It will be brand new. It will be perfect. Absolutely perfect. That is our first hope in the life to come. We are certain that Christ will raise us from the dead. But that's not all. In the second half of the text, in the next six verses, Paul, he, he unfolds the life to come. We will be resurrected, but there is more. And Paul gives an overview in verses 23 and 24. Let's look at it together. But each in his own order... And so now here is the order. Here is a sequence of events that's going to happen. Christ, the first fruits. Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Did you hear all the certainties? Christ, the first fruits. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that has already happened. Then, the text says, at the coming, those who belong to Christ. So next, here's where we are in history. We're waiting for this. We're waiting for His Coming. We're waiting for his second advent. We're waiting for Christ's return. And when he returns, we're told he will resurrect his people. That was just covered in verses 20 through 22. Verse 24, then comes the end. That is the final scene, that is the grand finale. And we're told two things will happen. And these are the last two certainties Paul mentions. Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. And that happens after he destroys every rule and every authority and power. So that brings us to our second hope. Identified in verse 24. Explained through verse 27, we have this second hope in the life to come. We are certain that Christ will destroy his enemies. Verse 24 Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after, and here it is, destroying. Every rule and every authority and power. So after the resurrection of his people and before the restoration of his kingdom, Christ will destroy all his enemies. He will defeat, he will conquer all his enemies. Listen to Paul describe this final battle in verses 25-27. through 27. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That is quoting Psalm 8-6 and Psalm 110-1. But when it says, here's a clarification, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. That is God the Father. So this picture is that this day is coming when everything will submit to Jesus. Absolutely everything will. Will submit to Jesus except God the Father. Everything, everyone will be in submission to Christ except God the Father. And the imagery is that everything will be under his feet. Total defeat. Complete and utter victory. No more enemies. And did you see the very last kill in the battle? What's the very last kill in the battle according to verse 26? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What a thought. The death of death. The death of something that to that point has been saved Jesus undefeated. An undefeated record. Billions of victories, zero losses. And in that day, that enemy will be destroyed. Hebrews 2 captures the significance of this for us as Christians. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, children, you and me, children of God, He Himself, Jesus, likewise... Partook of the same things. He became a human. That, this is why, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. People are enslaved to death. Try to delay it. Try to avoid it. Try to ignore it. But it's undefeated. It comes to every single one of us. For some it's a surprise. Some we see it coming. But it comes for every single one of us. Now the power of death was taken from Christians on the cross. So that the Power is gone. We'll read later in this chapter. The sting of death is gone. Because it doesn't mean that we are alienated. That we are separated from God. Actually, when we die, our soul leaves our body to be united with Jesus in paradise. So the power of death was taken on the cross. But in the end, Sir Paul's words, the end, the picture is that death itself is going to be destroyed. That means that from that day, never again will a soul be separated from a body. Never again will that happen. Never again will there be a funeral. Death gets the last one. And it's over. This is Paul's second hope in the life to come. We are certain that in the life to come, Christ will destroy all His enemies. Then, only then, once all His enemies are defeated, once everything has submitted to Christ, then the the very last scene of human history. We have this Third hope in the life to come. We are certain that Christ will restore the kingdom. My guess is that out of the three of these, that one might seem like the least significant. New body in heaven, that's significant. And you probably know it and feel it. Christ destroying all of his enemies. That sounds significant. You know it. You can feel that. But certainty that Christ will restore the kingdom. Why is that significant? Why is that a big deal? Well, here's how Paul describes it he describes it first in verse 24. When he's given the sequence of events, and then he elaborates a bit in verse 28. Verse 24 then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father. The last scene is Christ delivering the kingdom to God the Father. And then here's verse 28. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. You've heard me say this before. That... There are some similarities between the first two chapters in your Bible and the last two chapters in your Bible. Great similarities between these bookends of our Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. In those bookends of your Bible, you have creation And then you have restoration. You have God's perfect rule in Genesis 1 and 2 where all things are in submission to Him. And you have in Revelation 21 and 22 God's perfect rule where paradise is restored. And again, all things are in submission to Him. In between in your Bible, starting in Genesis chapter 3, you have sin and Satan and death. No sin, Satan, death in Genesis 1 and 2. No sin, Satan, death in Revelation 21 and 22. So, here is the picture. Keeping that in mind, here is the picture that Paul paints of the end. The Christ Jesus, He has come and He has come and He has accomplished all that He was commissioned to do. All that the Father sent Him to do, He's completed all of it. He has lived for His people. He has died for His people. He has been raised for His people And on this day, by this time, he has conquered every last enemy. And then, and only then, this is the picture. Then and only then, he returns to God the Father. Having secured the eternal kingdom. And he bows his knee before the Father and delivers this perfect kingdom to Him. And then God the Father reigns for all time that, what does it say at the end of verse 28? God may be all in all. John Calvin wrote, all things will be brought back to God as their alone beginning and end, that they may be closely bound to Him, and a picture of that perfect kingdom in revelation twenty one four he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more for the former things they have all passed away. This is our hope in the life to come. We are certain that Christ will raise us from the dead. We are certain that Christ will destroy His enemies who are our enemies. And we are certain that we will live forever in paradise. In the new heavens and the new earth. In conclusion, just one question. Do you look forward to this day? Think about this. Do we look forward to this day? For some of us, there have been or there will be, right, circumstances that push us to look forward to that day. Things happen to our bodies. We suffer. We endure pain. We lose loved ones. We're persecuted. All hell breaks loose around us. And these circumstances push us to look forward to that day when we'll be raised from the dead, when all enemies will be obliterated, and when the kingdom will be perfect and forever. But what about life when it doesn't have those difficult circumstances that are pushing you to look to this life to come? We don't pray that our circumstances would get worse. No Christian prays that. No Christian should pray that. We don't pray, God, I pray that everything would go awful and worse and that I would be diseased and that my loved ones would die. Though we see what God does in all of that, but we don't want that. We long for relief from all of that. So we're not praying for that. So how much then, when life is going well, when our needs are met, when we're not dealing with sickness, when... All of our kids are alive and when marriage with our spouse is sweet and when there is money in the bank and when with all that's happened, our job still is secure. And when we have friends and when we have support, isn't the danger that in those times we aren't looking to the life to come? So, Christian, do you look forward to this? Do you look beyond the weekend? Do you look beyond summer vacation or a trip or graduation or retirement? Many Christians today don't have any of these things to look forward to. And they would abandon their faith if it wasn't for their hope in the life to come in these certainties that we're being reminded of today. So are you content if your desires here on earth are denied? Are you trying to build paradise here on earth? Or do you know that paradise is not here on earth? Craig Blomberg wrote, Yet incurable diseases, unexpected accidents, and periodic exposure to the horrors of the less affluent parts of our world continue to point out the sheer inadequacy of such preoccupations. Sooner or later, we will die, and some of us will suffer quite a bit before we do. We need to recapture the longing for the life to come. I've heard they used to say of Christians that they were so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good. It may be that the opposite problem is more of a threat to us today. That we could be so earthly, physically, materially minded that we're no heavenly good. So again, do you look forward to this day? Do you think about and hope in the life to come? I pray that God will help me. Because I don't the way I should. I pray that God would help me. I pray that God would help you to look forward to. To hope more. Not in this life, but in the life to come. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these words that you inspired your man Paul to write. We can, we can see and imagine how helpful it was for the Corinthians. We can imagine how helpful it was for Paul as he faced so much suffering, so much persecution... So much tragedy in this life that he had to look to the life to come. God, you know the danger for some of us, not all of us, but you know the danger for some of us that that we would hold on to this life and we would seek treasure in this life and we would be ignorant of, thoughtless about the life to come. So God, first, we are so thankful and grateful that those, those things that have gone well, that they have gone well. Oh, thank you, God, for blessing us. Thank you for all that you've given us. We know that every gift is from your hand from above. But God, would you keep us from ignoring spiritual matters? Will you keep us from building treasure on this earth? Will you keep us from holding on to the things in this life as if it was everything? And keep us mindful of our hope in the certainties that we have in the life to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take communion together now, so if you would grab your communion packet, this kit, prepare to separate the emblems here. This top will peel back for the wafer, and then a second top will peel back for the juice. As a reminder of what it is that we're doing, let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, where Paul wrote, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And that's what we're doing today. So, if you're here with us and you are a Christian, which means you have turned from your sin, you have placed your faith in Christ, you are committed to Him and to His people, so you are committed to a local church, whether it's this one or another one that preaches the same gospel that you've heard here today, then you are welcome to take communion with us. So first, let's take the styrofoam together. This bread, believe it or not, this bread is a symbol of the body of Christ. Let's take and eat this together. we got you will now peel back your second layer this cup is a symbol of the blood of Christ let's take and drink this together now that one's actually better Would you please stand again with me?